You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Antonio, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. It took me a while to figure out how I wanted to frame today's episode. This is actually my third pass at it. I danced around the topics I want to cover and just sort of strolled leisurely through 3,000 years or so of European history, as well as philosophy. Instead of doing all of that, I'm going to get right to the point. The era in which our story takes place is called the Early Modern Period. I like to talk about early modern ideas because they can help us understand why the people in our story, including the pirates themselves, why they did what they did, but it also helps us to understand our modern world. The Early Modern Period roughly spans the 300 years from 1500 to 1800, one could say from Columbus to Napoleon. Again, that's not an exact time frame, but when dealing with European history, it works well enough. All the big events that we've talked about on the show, in depth at any rate, they are early modern events. We see social trends like the Reformation, the introduction of the printing press in Europe, mercantilism, rising literacy rates, and the birth of the middle class. We see improved sailing technology, which gives us things like Columbus and the conquest of the New World. We see colonialism and... All of that gives birth to a subcategory, the Age of Exploration, and really a subcategory of that, the Golden Age of Piracy. And as far as governmental trends are concerned, we see the beginnings of the shift away from feudal, monarchical societies toward self-governance. And that shift is generally agreed to have ended in the culmination of these trends, what's called the Age of Revolution, the French and American Revolutions, Napoleon. 1848, the Industrial Revolution, all that brought about the end of the early modern period and brought us into the late modern period. But we need to be careful when we talk about all of these labels. I mean, I don't know if late Baroque Austro-Venetian neoclassicalism is a thing, but it certainly sounds like a thing, doesn't it? That's not to say these labels don't have their place. I'm glad that historians are doing that work. They identify historical trends and define them. That's what these labels are. I do it myself. But today, though, we're going to be talking about philosophy and its effect on piracy, or its effect on the historiography of piracy, at least. 
so you'll forgive me a little bit of old-fashioned broad-brush history. I'd like to outline the trends of the history of European philosophy over about a thousand years. Longer, really, as we're going back to ancient Greece and what they call the Golden Age of Grecian philosophy. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Democritus, Pythagoras, Diogenes, all of them were great thinkers who created the basis of Western philosophy. And they were also the thinkers who most influenced the Roman philosophical ideas of republicanism and stoicism. Later, the early Christian Roman theologians incorporated a lot of that Greek philosophy to create the golden age of Christian philosophy. But when Rome fell in the West, a lot of those Greek ideas disappeared. Feudalism happened. But then in the Eastern Roman Empire, in Byzantium, they still had those Greek texts, they still had those ideas. And when the Byzantine Empire began to crumble under Ottoman assault, a lot of Greek-speaking Eastern Romans brought those texts with them when they fled to Italy. And thus the Renaissance began. All of a sudden, there were Europeans talking about equality and freedom and self-rule. There were Europeans questioning the divine right of kings. Republics start popping up all over the place. And all of this culminated in the final sub-era of the early modern period, an era that gave birth to the Age of Revolutions, called the Age of Enlightenment. Enlightenment ideals are all over our story. Our story today in particular, yeah, but also the whole story of piracy. They're kind of integral to the narrative. Those ideals are really what differentiate the golden age of piracy pirates from the, well, any other pirates. So we'll talk about a number of those ideas today, as well as in the months to come, but I want to begin with one particular proto-enlightenment writer and his famous book, Utopia, which influenced European idealists for centuries. This is episode 113, Utopian Apocalypse. For the past two episodes, we've framed the story of James Masson with ancient Greek words, Historia and Apocalypse. And I want to continue to do so today, but strictly speaking, Utopia isn't an ancient Greek word, at least not that I'm aware of, but it was created in the Greek fashion from Greek words, so I think it's close enough to count. Utopia, the word, was coined by Sir Thomas More, or Saint Thomas More. He was a writer, a philosopher, and a statesman under Henry VIII of England. He was one of Henry VIII's closest advisors, but he refused to accept his king's split with the Catholic Church, and he lost his head. The Catholic Church considers this a martyrdom, and Thomas More was canonized as the patron saint of politicians and statesmen. But More combined the Greek words for know and place when he created the word utopia, which literally translates to no place. Utopia, the book, is about, well, well, strictly speaking, it's really not about much of anything. It's kind of a dull read. I don't really recommend it. It's all world-building and no plot. But the subject of the text is the idyllic island called Utopia, located in the New World. Oddly, many of the ideas in Utopia are much more in line with the idea of Enlightenment-era Anglicans than with the Catholic Church of the 1500s. Some of those ideas were radical, and some were so radical that the USSR in the 20th century would honor Sir Thomas More as a proto-communist. On More's fictional utopia, private property was abolished. 
All goods were handed out equally. Unemployment was abolished as well as everyone was given work according to their strength, according to strengths defined by the state. Privacy is non-existent and all activities are done in full public view. Doors don't even have locks on Utopia because they are unneeded. Utopia has been hailed by, depending on who you ask, it's been hailed as a socialistic text. It's also been hailed as a scathing anti-socialist satire. But more probably, it was an exploration of what communal monastic practices might look like if applied in the real world. You can see why that would have been so interesting at the time, but what's really fascinating, to me at least, is the effect that this work had on literary traditions. When I read Utopia, I kept thinking about The Giver by Lois Lowry. The way the island looked in my mind was almost exactly the same. The Giver is an excellent example of utopian fiction, as are 1984, Brave New World, A Clockwork Orange, The Handmaid's Tale, and The Hunger Games. Now, I hear all of you saying, stop right there, those are dystopian novels, so allow me to explain. Traditionally speaking, utopia, when spelled with a U at the beginning, means any place that does not exist, but theoretically could. And that's actually the rub there. If it's an imaginary place that could not exist due to, you know, magic or aliens, it becomes fantasy. Now, a lot of sci-fi is technically a utopia. The Greek-derived prefix eu, spelled eu, means good or pleasant. For example, a euphemism is a pleasant substitute for a dirty subject. Euthanasia is a pleasant death. And Tolkien's idea of eucatastrophe is a good catastrophe. Utopia, when spelled with that eu prefix, means a really great place that doesn't exist but possibly could. Now, we don't really use that word in English, but we do use the word dystopia. So while, yeah, 1984 and The Giver and The Hunger Games are dystopian novels, they're also utopian, in that they're a place that could not exist, but theoretically could. All of this, I promise, is going to be relevant. However, now we can go back to our story of Captain James Misson. Somehow, I'm going to tie all of it back to apocalyptic literature, which we talked about last time, and the idea of utopian literature. When we left off, James Masson and the crew of his ship Victory had made their way from Europe to the West Indies all the way down to the southern tip of Africa at the Cape of Good Hope. Along the way, they collected guns and clothes and an East Indiaman. They had also collected like-minded crewmen. They had about 20 West African freedmen who were learning French, which was the primary language of the crew. They had 11 Dutch sailors with them, and they got 40 Englishmen from that East Indiaman, which had been put under the captaincy of the former Italian priest, Signor Caraccioli. And remember, they weren't pirates, at least according to their own definition. They were men who abhorred slavery and promoted democracy and equality under God for all people. They reached the Cape of Good Hope, which was always a tricky bit of sailing. Vasco da Gama named it Cabo das Tormentas, or the Cape of Torment. Normally, in preparation, sailors would have stopped at Cape Town, a Dutch settlement at the time, but pirates weren't welcome at Cape Town. So Victory doubled the coast and made for the Bay of St. Augustine on the southern tip of Madagascar. 
This was another common place for ships to stop, due to the deep anchorage and fresh water access, but it was more common for pirates because there were no authorities here. But when Masson arrived, he found an English East Indiaman already there, and it was very obviously sinking deep into the bay. The crew was busy ferrying themselves to shore, but it wasn't going fast enough, and more than a few men were preparing to swim. Victory swooped in and saved the day, bringing all the sailors on board. Those sailors asked to be dropped off at a nearby island where a Dutch ship probably, or maybe an English ship, would eventually stop and take them to a friendly port. Now that wasn't an ideal solution, but everybody here knew that Misson's ships would not be able to drop these men off at one of those friendly ports. They were pirate ships. One of them was a former East India Company ship. Everybody knew that they couldn't go anywhere that authorities would find them. They would be arrested. And it is worth mentioning that if the tables were turned, the pirates would have been arrested by the officers on board this sinking East Indiaman. But beggars can't be choosers. And Captain Masson did save these East India sailors, so most of them agreed to be dropped off. However, many of them did choose to join him. But why would they choose to go to a nearby island rather than just to get dropped off on the shore of the bay where the men were preparing to swim? Well, mainland Madagascar was, it was really close by, but an empty island further away was much safer than the nearby beach. See, Madagascar had never been successfully colonized by European powers. The locals were hostile to Europeans, and militarily they were powerful. At least they were powerful enough to encourage the Europeans to establish colonies on the outlying islands instead. Now, we're eventually going to have to talk about the geography and ethnicity and history of Madagascar, but today we're going to stick to Captain Johnson's fictional account of James Masson and we'll use the names of kingdoms that was given in that account, which may or may not accurately represent the inhabitants at the time or the modern-day inhabitants of the region. But we do need to understand that Madagascar is huge. It's the fourth-largest island in the world. It's more than twice as large as Great Britain. There were a lot of people in Madagascar, and there were hundreds of city-states all along the coastal regions that all had their own rulers and their own distinct forms of government. All of them were always vying for territory and dominion over the others. Calling these city-states or these groups of people, calling them tribes, would be dismissive and incorrect. The people of Madagascar spoke numerous languages, although most of them did derive from a common ancestor. They had complex systems of trade and currency, and they were a seafaring people. Now, they didn't produce gunpowder or guns, but they did use them, and they did produce plenty of iron tools and iron weapons. Madagascar had never been colonized, but they were in contact with Africa and Arabia and Mughal India, not to mention in contact with Europe, who had colonies all around Madagascar, just not on the island itself. And the people of Madagascar, well, they weren't of African descent, not ethnically or linguistically, at least. We, we shouldn't call these people natives. There were black Madagascar natives who had been there since 10,000 BC, but the people who lived there in the 17th century 
were people who had migrated to the island from Indonesia and the Philippines in about the 5th century. The two kingdoms in question today are people of that Indonesian or Filipino descent that were called the people of Johanna and Mohia. However, that's not what they called themselves. Both are derived from European names. But after James Masson and Signor Carcioli rescued the sailors on that East Indiaman, they returned to the Bay of St. Augustine and made contact with the Johannans. The Johannans controlled the river that fed the Bay of St. Augustine, and they were suspicious of these Europeans who made landfall. They were nearly hostile to them, but Johanna was under siege on both sides from Mohian forces. They may have been in control of the river, but the land to either side, to the northwest and southeast, was controlled by Mohia. It was clear that they needed an ally much more than another enemy. A general history tells us that the people of Johanna spoke English and esteemed the English above all other people, which, you know, sure, it's hard to say if there's any truth in that. There might be a little bit. St. Augustine was a common stop for English sailors, and unlike the French and the Dutch, England had not just recently tried to violently conquer the island. A general history goes on to tell us, quote, They arrived at Johanna and were kindly received by the Queen Regent and her brother, on account of the English on one hand and of their strength on the other, which the Queen's brother was not able to make head against and hoped they might assist him against the King of Mohia, who threatened him with a visit. End quote. And then it goes on to tell us that the newcomers began to build alliances. It says, quote, They were supplied by the queen with all the necessaries of life. Masson married her sister, as Caraccioli did the daughter of her brother, whose armory consisted of no more than two rusty firelocks and three pistols. Caraccioli furnished the queen's brother with thirty fusils, as many pair of pistols, and gave him two barrels of powder and four of ball. Several of the men took wives, and some required their share of the prizes, which was justly given them, they designing to settle on this island, but the number of these did not exceed ten. End quote. And in case what's happening here wasn't clear, there were a bunch of marriages that took place in an indeterminate amount of time, anywhere from a few weeks to a few months, and during that time, those men decided it would be in their best interest to cash out to leave the crew of the victory and to settle down with their new wives. This was far from uncommon during the golden age of piracy. I mean, how many men during the age of exploration might have married one of the young and beautiful women they met when they stopped on a distant shore and met the native people there, but were forbidden from doing so by the tyrannical captain? Pirates, on the other hand, get to take their share of the earnings and settle there. And this was especially common among the pirates who stopped here on Madagascar. Not just on this voyage, but all throughout this era, a ton of people will settle down on this island. Which is significant, because the people of the coastal regions of Madagascar still have a significant amount of European ancestry. However, there were no European colonies on the island at the time. Most of that ancestry probably comes from the pirates. And writers all throughout the era talk about the stunning beauty of the women of Madagascar, as well as the welcoming, comfortable lifestyle offered by the people of the island. But if that were the entire story, then why would we be talking about it? 
shortly after the victory and the East Indiamen arrived and allied themselves with the Johannans, the devious Mohia people sprang a surprise attack on Johanna. Now we know nothing about the politics between these two peoples before this attack, and perhaps the Johannans had it coming, but it's painted very much as though the Mohia are the aggressors in this situation. But the queen's brother, their general, asked the aid of Misson and Carcioli in repelling the Mohians. The two captains agreed, and the combined forces of English, French, Dutch, African, and Johannan soldiers marched out carrying excellent guns to expel the Mohia from the lands of Johanna. Now the force that marched out was about 50% Johannan and about 50% pirate, which was twice as many troops as the people of Johanna could normally muster. And in the end, the Johannan general wanted to press the advantage and kill all of the Mohians, but instead, Misson insisted on taking prisoners. See, he wanted to try and build an alliance with Mohia as well as Johanna, and to make himself, in doing so, an influential, powerful arbiter of the peace. To that end, quote, he sent the prisoners safe to Mohia with a message to the king to desire he would make peace with the king of Johanna. But that prince sent word he took laws from none and knew when to make war and peace without advice, which he neither asked nor wanted. Misson, irritated by this rude answer, resolved to transfer the war into his own country. End quote. Every available Johannan fighting man was roused and armed. Every available pirate was roused and armed. They rowed out to the ships and sailed them just to the northwest, where they made landfall at the closest point to the Mohian capital. All of the soldiers of Mohia were waiting for them to frustrate any attempt that the Johannans and pirates might make at landfall. But of course, the guns on board Victory and the East Indiamen were much more powerful than anything the Mohians had access to. They fired two volleys and dispersed the force intended to keep them from making landfall. During the landing, occasionally the Mohians would attempt to rally, but they were always dispersed by a volley of cannon fire, and once the pirates had made a beachhead, they were able to hold them off with musket fire as well. By the time the entirety of the force was on land, the majority of the Mohian defenders were dead. There was virtually no resistance when the combined forces of the pirates and the Johannans marched inland to the Mohia capital and burned it to the ground. All of the defenders were slain, and the rest of the Mohian people were exiled. Now the capital they attacked was the capital to the northwest of Johanna. Most of the exiles traveled inland around the Johannan capital and made their way into the southeast Mohian lands. But once the troops returned to Johanna, they enjoyed a hero's welcome and they feasted for days. However, Misson had a proposition for the queen. Now that all of the Mohians had been pushed to the southeast, he wanted to build a settlement in the recently abandoned Mohian territory. It had access to fresh water and the bay. That bay had suitable anchorage for his ships. Now the queen was reluctant to allow him this. She probably wanted that territory for herself, but they really didn't have the people there in Johanna to occupy it. But Mission countered, 
that there had been a large number of marriages, and there would be children born in all of those marriages, and he suggested yet more to deepen their alliance. He also asked that some of the men of Johanna be allowed to join their settlement. He said that this would not be a French colony or a pirate colony. It would be a free state with freedom of religion and equality for all people. And the text doesn't mention this next part, but it's kind of what actually happened in the real-world version of this story. The international trade benefits here would be huge. You know, it might be a disaster to set up a French colony on the land, but a colony that had European contacts would be able to bring in supplies and money. Those supplies would enable Johanna to become the most powerful kingdom on Madagascar. And he also pointed out to the queen that Johanna needed a powerful ally. If she did not have the people to occupy the lands that had recently been evacuated, well, somebody was going to move in. Either a group from the north, who also disliked the Johannans, or the Mohians would make their way back there. But if Misson was allowed to set up a settlement there, then the pirates would be placed between the Johannans and whatever force might move in. This settlement would turn the two-front war that Johanna had faced for many years into a one-front war with a powerful ally by her side. An ally that, in a generation, would be made up of men and women carrying the queen's own blood. In the end, the queen of Johanna gave her assent and agreed to send 400 men to help build the settlement. Misson set about building two octagonal forts overlooking the bay, and while that was being built, Victory sailed out to capture ships and supplies. She brought back two Portuguese ships that carried enough guns to fully guard the bay, and they turned that bay into a proper harbor. The pirates, or, you know, I've been calling them pirates, but I should probably say the deistic anarchist colonists who occasionally captured ships, well, they tore the captured ships apart, and they harvested their wood. They kept the tar and the sails and the ropes and anything else that was used on board a ship, but the timber from those ships was used to build a dock and a small shipyard. And once they had the forts overlooking the bay and the harbor, they began building houses, and then the men began to settle down. There was kind of a splinter colony that was set up a few miles inland that would, a couple of years later, bring in a hunter from another kingdom deep inland. Now this hunter was a black African. He didn't speak French or English or the language of the Johannans, but they gave this man gifts of an axe and a musket. This was the beginning of yet another alliance that would make this settlement the most powerful force on Madagascar. And Misson named his colony. He called it Libertalia, the people he called Liberty. And right here, with the founding of Libertalia, we need to pause. In part, we need to pause because the chapter on James Misson in A General History of the Pirates ends rather abruptly, and partly to remind you that none of this really happened. You know, some of it is based on what did really happen, but we don't have any magical French documents that detail that and tell us all about the politics of the men involved. There was no utopian pirate kingdom called Libertalia. The parallels to what really did happen in the real world, we're going to talk about all those when the time comes, but this story... Well, something funny happens here. Even though the story of James Masson, or the chapter on James Masson, ended so abruptly, a few chapters later we get the story of another pirate, 
this time a real-world pirate who actually lived, named Thomas II. Now, the version of his story that we get in a general history is almost as fictitious as that of James Misson, but some of it is corroborated by actual history. But that story, the story of Thomas II, intersects with the story of James Misson at Libertalia. They have all kinds of adventures together. But we're not going to tell that story today. We're not going to tell that story next week. We're going to wait to tell that story until we talk about Thomas II. However, in this story, in which James Misson and Signor Caraccioli play a major role, there is a distinct shift in the style of the narrative. I mean, there are things like different spellings of basic words and names. There's a different tone, there's different pacing, there is... In the Thomas II chapter, a distinct lack of proselytizing, which there is a bunch of in the James Masson chapter, but notably, the author, which is still listed as Captain Johnson, but the author in the two story begins to call Captain Masson Monsieur. And that didn't happen once in the chapter on Captain Masson. I do want to skip ahead a bit here, though. There is, at the beginning of two's chapter, a fair amount of melodrama. There are sea battles, there's swashbuckling, there's mutinies. But then, the style appears to shift back into that of Captain Masson's chapter. Almost as though Captain Two would have just entered into the story of James Masson, but the publishers of A General History wanted to create a new chapter, so they added in some exciting bits at the beginning, and then just continued telling the tale of James Masson, now including Captain Two. Those three main characters, Misson, Two, and Carcioli, sat down with a coalition of their sailors to work out how things were going to run there in the Britalia. And I'm going to read to you a fair bit of that tale. Quote, Next day the whole colony was assembled, and the three commanders proposed a form of government, for where there were no coercive laws, the weakest would always be the sufferers. Men's passions blinding them to justice and making them ever partial to themselves, they ought to submit the differences which might arise to calm and disinterested persons who could examine with temper and determine according to reason and equity. They looked upon a democratical form where the people were the makers and judges of their own laws. Therefore, they would divide themselves into companies of ten men and every such company choose one to assist in the settling a form of government and in making wholesome laws for the good of the whole. That the treasure and cattle they were masters of should be equally divided. Such lands as any man could enclose should be deemed his property, which no other should lay any claim to. The proposal was received with applause, and they decimated themselves that very day, but put off the meeting of the states till a house was built, which they set about very cheerfully, and finished in about a fortnight. End quote. So, let's pause here. What they did was decide that they should have a representative democracy, where every group of ten men would be represented by one chosen person. Those representatives, along with the three captains, would sit down and decide all of the laws of the colony, in the meantime, everybody had the opportunity to enclose what land they could to begin settling down and creating a life for themselves. But when the house was finally completed, the House of Representatives met. Quote, when this body of politicians met, Caraccioli opened the sessions with a handsome speech, 
showing the advantage flowing from order, and then spoke to the necessity of lodging power in the hands of one. That such a power, however, should not be for life nor hereditary, but determine it at the end of three years when a new choice should be made by the state or the old confirmed for three years longer by which means the ablest men would always be at the head of affairs, and their power being of short duration, none would dare to abuse it. End quote. For the pirates to make this decision, well, look at what they're doing here. These pirates made a decision that supreme executive power should be placed in the hands of one person, however, that power would not be for life and they would not be able to pass it on to a chosen heir. Instead, they would have a term of three years, at which time the people would vote on it. Because as we all know, supreme executive power derives from a mandate of the masses and not some farcical aquatic ceremony. The passage goes on, quote, Their first sessions lasted ten days, and a great many wholesome laws were enacted, registered in the state book, printed, and dispersed, for they had some printers and letter-founders among them. Captain Two, the conservator, honored with the title of admiral, and Carcioli made secretary of state. He chose a council of the ablest among them, without distinction of nation or color, and the different languages began to be incorporated, and one made out of many. An equal division was made of their treasure and cattle." End quote. Okay, so if you need proof that this entire story is a fiction, I would point out to you the bit about having printers and letter founders among these pirates, but let's blow right past that. So at this meeting, they made Captain Misson the supreme executive. They made Captain Two the admiral, and they made Caraccioli the secretary of state. Now, Caraccioli chose a council of the ablest men. That council would make some of the more difficult decisions there at Libertalia. You could look at them, if you chose to do so, as a sort of a senate house, while the representatives would be a house of representatives. So in 34 days, these pirates came up with a system of government that had a supreme executive, a vice executive, and a secretary of state, along with a directly representative body and a council that worked very much like a senate. Libertalia is often called an anarchic pirate colony, but that's anything but anarchic. That government sounds very familiar to most of the people of the modern world. That entire passage was about pirates writing a constitution. And at the time that might have seemed anarchic, to the powers that be at least, the powers that be being the monarchy and the church, but we all know what that sounds like, right? This was written in 1724. Now, remember, in 1724 it would have been influenced by the pirates of Nassau and the English political climate we'll talk about next time, but this was 30 years after the real-life events that centered around Madagascar. The people of England knew all about Madagascar, and they already associated it with pirates and piracy. They knew the names of Thomas II and Adam Baldridge and William Kidd and Henry Avery. These were famous villains. But this story, this excerpt from a general history of the robberies and murders of the most notorious pirates, doesn't talk about robbery and murder. At least it's a secondary element of the story. What it focuses on is a truly moral pirate and a truly moral system of government. This story is giving us a possibility.
Last time we talked about allegorical history, specifically the allegorical history in the book of Daniel, and I suggested in this book. But then we end that story in the actions that I think most of us today would see as morally right. The people of Madagascar, in order to form a more perfect utopia, to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty for themselves and their posterity, established a united state of libertalia. That is the apocalypse of this story. That is the prophecy of this story. We have this allegorical history of the pirates that ends in something that seems very familiar to us today. When we talked about the book of Daniel, I mentioned that the literal, textual prophecy within it did not come to pass, and it didn't. And the utopian ideals of Captain Charles Johnson's Libertalia, if we read it as an apocalypse, never came to pass either. But prophecy is a tricky thing. There are other interpretations of the book of Daniel, interpretations that see the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, in the text, or some of them see the rise of the Roman Emperor, and some of them see the rise of Emperor Constantine and his adoption of Christianity as the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, I'm not a religious person, nor am I anything of a religious scholar, but personally I see religious prophecy as a fable that is intended to teach and inspire and help the people that read it to help them in their daily lives, as well as to help them prepare for the future. Perhaps there is a reading of this chapter of a general history of the pirates that could see the utopian ideals of this fictional deistic society, a society in which all men were created equal, in which the people enjoyed the freedom of religion and the freedom of expression, in which every person was free to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, were we to read that as a piece of prophetic, apocalyptic literature, we might choose to see the fulfillment of that prophecy fifty years later, across the Atlantic, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 1776. And that's my reading of the text. That's what I see in this story. Others would absolutely disagree with me on this, but I think, well... I don't want to speak to the intentions of an author that we will never meet, but it's very possible that they may have felt that in 1776 this world that they envisioned was in fact given the opportunity to thrive. Next time, in an effort to understand what this author in 1724 may have been striving for, we're going to look at the political climate of England in 1724. We're going to look into the growing anti-monarchist movement in England and across the pond, and then we're going to look at the very beginnings of that anti-monarchist movement. We're going to look at the Glorious Revolution. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody that has helped to support the show as well. Everybody that has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has given us a review or a rating wherever you listen to the show, and everybody that has recommended this show to your friends and family, I wouldn't be able to do all of this without all of you. So thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. 
If you have not checked them out yet, you certainly should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight.